I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew, chapter 9, this morning. As we look into God's Word, it's been our joy uh, week after week to listen to Matthew, the disciple, but also Matthew, the evangelist, shepherding our hearts. Matthew is sharing the gospel with us week by week. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen how God called him specifically to be a follower of Jesus. And by default, as we are studying through Matthew's gospel, turning to Matthew chapter 9 this morning and beginning in, in verse 18, what we find is that we, here at Grace, friends, we are being discipled by Matthew as well. Matthew is a disciple maker, discipling us in the school of Christ. As we look into the word of God this morning, if we're not careful, we can lose the wonder of the miracle. This week, we, our family enjoys reading all types of books and stories and listening to audiobooks. This past week, we were riding down the road, and one of my children asked me about something we had just listened to, and they said, you know, we often refer to the Bible's stories as if they're just stories, but they're true, right? I said, absolutely, they're true. And maybe it's more accurate to say these are Biblical accounts, unless we mix the idea of a story here and a story there being like a story that's a bedtime story. We begin to walk through the wonder and the truth of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit reminded me here of our study of Matthew's Gospel, friends, that we don't lose the wonder of it all. As we look into the text this morning, we need to guard our hearts against the the subtle head nod, the obnoxious proverbial golf clap, the crusty I've heard this before, and may the Lord help us to see what Matthew wants us to see, which is there is a centrality to faith here in the text. Each one of these accounts that we're beginning to embark upon as we move into another miracle passage or section is pointing to the central aspect and role of faith of of, of these individuals as they come to faith in Christ. And here's what Matthew wants us to know as we look into the word of God is he wants our faith to grow as well. As he tells us of these hand-selected, hand-picked accounts of what took place on an average day in the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. So I have a question for us this morning as we read the scriptures, and it's this personal question. Friends, this morning, is your faith, is it a growing faith? Is your faith a growing faith? May God keep us from growing stagnant and crusty, and edgy. And may the Lord help our hearts to be revived and revitalized, if you will, as we look into this text and with wonder anew. May the Holy Spirit stir up our hearts as we look into it. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he spoke, Jesus, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and reached out and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, He said to her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith 
has made you well, whole. The woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but is sleeping. And they begin to ridicule him. Now, but verse 25, But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and then the girl arose. And this report, the report of this, went out into all the land. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. As we said just a moment ago, Matthew is painting a portrait for us that is consistent with both Luke and John. For example, Luke in his writing in Acts chapter 1 verse 1 begins the, his account of the history of the church of this Jesus began to both do and teach. Matthew's gospel explicitly focuses on the teaching ministry of Jesus. There's more of the teaching ministry of Jesus in Matthew's gospel than in the other gospels. But here, Matthew again returns to a triplet or a number of, of miracles that Jesus began to do, emphasizing that Jesus was not just a teacher, but Jesus was king. His kingdom is here, and Jesus had compassion for the people. John chapter 1, verse 14, John says it like this, The word was made flesh, and notice this word here, and dwelt among us. This is Matthew's aim here. Picking up with those other disciples, John would also write in 1 John chapter 1, These things which our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hands have handled. This text is organic. This text is real. There's mud on the boots. Jesus is present in the house. These, these problems are very real to everyday life. And Jesus, Matthew shows us, has compassion on those that the Father leads his steps, guides his steps, and that Jesus has compassion on those that he encounters. In fact, if you look at verse 35 of Matthew 9 there, this is the really kind of the theme of this section culminating the miracles, this third group of miracles. When Matthew tells us, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and notice, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes... Notice here, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Keep that verse, verse 35, in the backdrop of our text here this morning. Jesus is a shepherd, and his heart is moved at the sheep being lost without a shepherd. His heart cares about these individuals that he interacts with. Already in our study of Matthew's gospel, as we've looked at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, Matthew gives us a grouping of miracles that Jesus performs, each signifying and telling us something important about Jesus and his deity and why he has come. That was the, the healing of the leper, the healing of the sick servant of the Roman centurion, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And as we're going to see in just a moment, that miracle that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew records for us where Jesus healed the centurion's servant had effects. It was a, there was a ripple effect. Uh, the rock has hit the pond and the, the concentric circles are reverberating out. And Jairus, the ruler that we're about to look at, hears of this ministry of Jesus, begins to experience a personal dynamic in that his daughter becomes sick. And it's because of what Jesus has done in the Roman centurion's life. And if you remember that text... He was much loved by the Jews because that Roman centurion built a synagogue there. Now, Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. 
Do you see how the, they connect? You see how the testimony of Jesus has gone forth. Then we saw a second set of miracles in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18, all the way through chapter 9. And then we've had an aside where we've looked at Matthew's call, the call to discipleship and its importance. Last week we saw the previous verses in verses 14 through 17, where Jesus gives the full meaning of the new wine and the wineskins, of what it is to be and to dwell and to abide with Christ. He is the great bridegroom and the purpose of it all and the gospel that he brings. We find here in our text, as we look into our text here this morning, that they're present in Matthew's home. And that is why Matthew begins in verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, connecting us to the previous passage. There's a group, there's a party, there's a conversation taking place here. But we find there's one more guest who comes to the table. And here in our passage, we'll frame our thoughts around three succinct points, the desire that we see here, the desire, the delay, and the derision. Number one, beginning with the desire here in verse 18, our text tells us while he spoke these things to them, who, who's them? The scribes, the Pharisees, those who are asking the disciples of John who specifically have come and ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples do not fast? So we're not going to rehash that lesson from last week, but this is the audience. And while Jesus spoke to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped Jesus. Now imagine the, the contrast here. This is a tense situation. There's condemnation in the air. Uh, there's anxiety in the air. There's tension. Matthew's wondering, you know, what's going to happen here? I've invited these people to our home. Now these people have questions. There's condemnation. It, it is not a welcoming environment. And in the middle of all of this, a man just bursts into the scene, comes into the scene, and begins to worship Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, outside of my, Matthew and Jesus' most intimate disciples, nobody else has worship on the mind <laughs> at the moment. But this man comes with great need. He is a ruler. We do not have time to look at Mark's account and Luke's account, but both of those gospel records give us his name. His name is Jairus. This man is a ruler, a leader of the synagogue there at Capernaum. In the gospels, the word ruler almost always means a ruler of the synagogue, and Mark confirms this and makes this clear in his account in Mark chapter 5, verse 22. In fact, Mark tells us a fuller version of the story where Matthew is known to condense and just give us the facts of, of what we need to know. Mark tells us that this is the second time, that there's two times this man comes to Jesus. Initially, he comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is sick, please come. There is, there is pressure, there is weight, there is stress, there is urgency. But then the man's servants come to him and tell him, forget it, your daughter is dead. And yet this man still asks of the Lord, simply come and touch her, put your hand upon her, and she, she will live. In fact, as I mentioned before, Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, which is the one that the centurion built for the Jews, Luke chapter 7, verse 5 tells us. So we see the, the connecting, interconnecting circles of how these stories come together. The reason this ruler comes to Jesus is given to us here in the text. He announces that his daughter has just died, but he asks of Jesus, he says, simply come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, it's interesting, many people compare this man's faith, speaking of the Roman centurion, to him. If you remember the Roman centurion's faith, Jesus said of that man, such faith I have not seen in all of Israel. And people like to compare and contrast, many commentaries compare and contrast this man's faith and say it was not as good as the other man's faith. And friend, I just want to just get to the, the bottom line. Listen, it's not your faith, it's the Jesus you come to. 
People like to compare and criticize how the, the Roman centurion came and said, just simply speak the word, and how this man says, listen, come and lay your hand. The point is, he came to the right source. He came to the right person. It's not your faith, friends. Get your eyes off of your faith and get your eyes on Jesus. He comes with urgency. This is very real. He's just coming to Jesus, and he announces, verse 18, he says, my daughter has died. And in my preparation of the text and reading it, that, that, that just hits like a ton of bricks, doesn't it? My daughter has died. Luke tells us that this is his only daughter. We're told that she is 12 years old, and Mark tells us that she is his only daughter in his accounts. When we put these together, we understand there's gravity here in the text. There's a weight here in this man's life. This man is a ruler. He's just like the other religious leaders, but he's broken. Friends, God has ways of doing that, doesn't he? This man is broken. He doesn't care what anyone thinks about him. He doesn't care that he might lose his job. He's desperate because he loves his child. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us that if his daughter was 12, it's likely that already they celebrate her coming into womanhood, as was Jewish tradition. For the boys, it would be at 13 years of age. For the girls, it would be at 12 years of age. No doubt they had probably recently just celebrated with anticipation of her life and hope for her future. And all of a sudden, all of that is dashed. This is the reason this ruler comes to Jesus. His pride is gone. His position is gone. None of these things can help him. And notice how he doesn't go to the other leaders who are standing there. Notice who he comes to. He knows his only hope is Jesus. And so he comes to the right person in the right place. Notice the respect, verse 18, that, that he gives to Jesus. And this shines in contrast to the scene. We have to connect it to the previous scene. The text tells us in verse 18, this ruler named Jairus came and he worshipped Jesus. Friends, this is so unusual in that, as I've mentioned, this man is, is a Jewish leader of a Jewish synagogue. And he's one of the first individuals among these others who come and openly, unabashedly, even different than Nicodemus, he doesn't come by night. He comes right in the middle of someone's home, recognizes who Jesus is, and worships Jesus. And I have no doubt in my heart, the text does not tell us this, that he worships Jesus because Jesus is who he is. He is sovereign. He is deity. Matthew wants us to know that this is the king. This is your Messiah who is here. And what this man says, I recognize that. It took a desperate situation for me to come to this. And in this type of worship, I believe, is one like this. Jesus, I love you. I've come to see who you are. I realize that you're my only hope. I know that you can heal my daughter, but my worship is pure and unadulterated. If you can, if you choose not to, you are the Messiah. I bow the knee to you. This is the homage. This is the respect. This is the, what the man brings to Christ. And it stands in stark contrast to the unbelieving other religious leaders who are present there that day. Friends, it's a reminder to us that Jesus isn't looking for fans. Jesus is calling disciples. He's calling followers. And this man found Christ in his hour and time of trouble. Then we notice the text tells us his request that he gives to Jesus. He asks of him, he says, simply come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, we come with the perspective of knowing who Jesus is. And this is where we need to enter into the text that this is real time. Most of the people here don't believe this. Jesus hasn't performed a resurrection miracle yet. This man believes of Jesus and knows of Jesus what Jesus has not yet shown here 
according to Matthew. This man is asking of Jesus, confessing of Jesus, what he believes Jesus can do. We've seen Jesus perform healing to show power over the natural realm, the spiritual realm. We'll see in just a moment, again, repeatedly in the physical realm. But here, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus has power over death. And for some of you this morning, you're, you're tone deaf, you're tuned out. But when we start talking about death, your ears perk up. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Friends, as we look to Jesus, how can we know that this Messiah is who he says he is? How can we know that he is the Son of God? Each one of these miracles, Matthew is saying, look to Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus, because he is who he says he is. And in the miracle today, what we will see here is that Jesus shows that he has power over the grave. What victory, friends. What hope we have in the fact that there is hope over death, hell, and the grave. Now, throughout the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha and others did perform resurrection miracles of bringing someone back from the grave. As Jesus this morning will perform this same miracle, he's connecting himself to the work of the past, and he's proving that this is the Messiah. And the question is not whether what we think about it. The question is, is, do you see Jesus is as he says he is? Do you see him as the Son of God? Do you recognize that he is the Messiah? Do you see him as Lord and Savior? And have you worshipped him? Have you brought your homage to him of worship and bowed the knee to Christ and Christ alone? Thirdly, another point we see here in verse 19 is the reception that Jesus gives. So Jesus, how does he respond to being interrupted? Jesus arose and he followed him, and so did his disciples. We want to ask a question here. What does this text tell us about the person of Christ? What does this text tell us about his personality, about his nature? How does Jesus respond when he is interrupted? Is Jesus accessible? Can you find Jesus? Can you talk to him? Can you touch Jesus? These two miracles tell us so much about his person, friends. Jesus is interruptible, as we see here in the text. He's, he's not a grouch. He's interrupted right in the middle of his teaching. And how does Jesus respond? So Jesus arose, and he followed him. Jesus is interruptible. What else does this text tell us about Jesus? Jesus is accessible. You can get to him. In fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, there's a group of children that come to Jesus, and the disciples are annoyed. Like many people get annoyed at children. Here come the Indians, here come the, you know, here come the crumb makers, here come the, all those types of things. How does Jesus respond? Well, the disciples respond like a lot of us would respond. Hey, we've got something important going on right here right now. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 let the kids come to me. Let the little children come to me. How does Jesus respond in, in regards to being interruptible? He's interruptible. He's accessible. You can come to him. Friends, we're often the ones who are not those things. But when we look into the text and say, what does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus is kind. He is compassionate. And that's what the theme of this passage is when we look at verse 35. He's looking at the lost here. He's looking at these individuals as individuals and not just in a grouping, not just in a mass of people. He sees them as individual souls in need of a shepherd. And so we see that Jesus receives this man. Secondly, we see the delay as we look into this text, first there is the man Jairus who comes to Jesus. He comes with great desire and great urgency. Secondly, our second main heading is this, the delay that comes. 
And I want you to compare and contrast this with the urgency and the desire of, of Jairus who comes to Jesus. And now on the scene, this is everyday life. This is everyday living. This man, Jairus, could be tempted to be personal and selfish and say, I've got Jesus right now. He's doing something for me. He's helping me. Now, everybody get out of the way. But here we see a very real example of another woman coming onto the scene. She has needs as well. Verse 19 tells us that she is a woman with an issue of blood. This is a continual flow of blood from her womb that has been a chronic problem. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that it's been for 12 years. This is a very serious thing, which we'll see in just a moment. But this woman in verse 19 comes to Jesus. So Jesus arose and followed him. And suddenly, verse 20, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. To understand the meaning of the text is you have to understand the Jewish laws of ceremonial laws of cleanliness and those types of things. This woman, first of all, just know this as we kind of put it into a succinct summary. This woman was considered unclean according to the Jewish laws and regulations. The words of the gospel writers are careful to kind of explain the situation to us. But as I mentioned, she had a continual flow of blood here. No doubt, some writers say that she must have been anemic, further subjecting her to more serious diseases. But the most painful aspect of this problem was not the problem itself, but what the problem meant for her. She was unclean. She was like a leper in this regard because the problem never went away. She's like the leper that we saw in chapter 8 removed. Lepers had to live outside the camp, if you will. This affected her social life, her family life, her professional life. Anything that was in regards to her, it affected everything. She couldn't shop where others shopped. She was unclean. And everywhere she went, she had to say, unclean, unclean. She had no friends, no people surrounding her. In fact, as we often saw in the lepers in Jewish tradition, if lepers or unclean people came into the presence of others, it was permissible for people to immediately begin to take up stones and to begin stoning them, saying, get out, get away, get away from us. This woman was unclean. In fact, Leviticus, if you're taking notes and want to look it up later, Leviticus 15, 25 through 33, gives the specifications for why this is the case. Leviticus 15, 25 through 33. This interruption, this woman comes and she is unclean. The second thing we see about her is she is isolated. Again, as I mentioned, no one can come into contact with her. This medical problem defined her life. Thirdly, she is incurable. In fact, Luke makes this, this clear, and it's interesting. If you remember, Luke, the gospel writer, is, is a doctor. But Luke makes it clear that, as well as the other two writers, that no one could heal her. In other words, this woman has exhausted every means. She's gone to Mayo Clinic. She's gone to the best of the best. She's gone to the experts of the day. And no one can help her. In other words, it's been a long time to be isolated and alone. In fact, Mark tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 26, instead of getting better, it grew worse and worse and worse. And yet this lady recognizes Jesus. She hears of this man called Jesus who can heal people of their diseases. He has power over even this. She believes she hears him, no doubt, maybe from afar. We don't know this, but she might have been present that day at the Sermon on the Mount and heard the whole message, unclean, afar, aloof. But in her heart, she, she hears it, she believes it, and she says, that is the Messiah. 
And what Matthew's telling us is that while there are those around Jesus that may not readily believe and are scornful and mocking, here are those that God is plucking here and there that are trophies of his grace. And this woman comes to Jesus and has the boldness to reach out and to touch him. And when we understand the fact that she's unclean, that she could lose her life over this, she could be stoned to death over this, and yet this woman's faith is so strong and so confident, she touches him and is healed. In fact, Luke tells us that Jesus felt power go out from him. God the Father gives Jesus the discretion as he is, is this moment begins to take place. This is a divine moment. This is of the Father's will, of the Father's blessing. And Jesus turns in this throng, this tight house, many people. And when Jesus turns, Luke tells us and says, who touched me? Matthew says this. The disciples say to him, what do you mean who touched you? There, there are like tons of people here. Who touched you? And Jesus says, someone has touched me and the power has healed them. And he turns and sees the woman and she is made whole. She is made clean. Friends, I don't know what problem you have today. I, I, I don't think anybody's problem is close to this woman's problem. But we all have problems. The problems that we experience, the problems that we live and work through are real. They bring about, as our Sunday school class saw this morning, anxiety that is crippling. The fear that comes with that, the worrying that begins to take place. And these things can become chains that are hanging around our neck. Friends, I just want to encourage you, look to Jesus. You can get to him this morning. You can, I don't know what your problem is, but I can point you to who can fix the problem. I can point you to who can give you grace for the trial. I can point you to Jesus who can change everything. He will redeem your problem. If he chooses to, he can heal you of your problem. But I can assure you and comfort you in this. It will be for his glory, for your good. He will give you grace. In all of this, we see two believing strangers unwittingly come to Jesus and shine like bright lights upon the dark contrast of the people of unbelief there that day. And they say, Lord, we believe. Jesus, we believe. We hear you and we believe. And we see a contrast here finally in number three, the derision that is here in the text. Well, notice how Jesus turned with his disciples, verse 22 tells us, but Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well that hour. Verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they immediately began to ridicule him. To give us a little bit of the context as we think about, why is this called the derision? When someone passed away, immediately professional mourners were hired. Those mourners were literally paid to fake cry and to wail and to scream and to say the deceased person's name on repeat. And just to go on and on. This was Jewish tradition and culture. Sounds strange to us. We just think, who, who would do that? They did that. This is a noisy scene. This is a clanging cymbal and sounding a brass type of scene. And what's kind of unusual is, is that it's all fake. They're paid to do this. So the derision comes easily. They're not actually grieving. They're not actually entering into the throes of sorrow, although some, like the Father, is. This is just tradition. This is just what they do. Jesus comes in and simply says, in verse 23, he comes in and says, Move, please. Make room. For the girl is not dead but she is, she's sleeping. Jesus isn't confused. 
This is not a misdiagnosis. Sleeping here is a common metaphor in the New Testament for, for death. Jesus wants us to know that this is not permanent. The miracle he's about to perform, it's as if this girl is simply sleeping. These people are operating in the realm of the flesh. It's noisy. They're paid professionals. And they hear Jesus and they think he's the one who's laughable when they are the ones who are, are laughable. And Jesus simply makes a request and asks them to move and to make room. And they begin to laugh and to scorn him. I want to ask you a question. How do you respond in the rare, brief moments when you are laughed at and scorn is shown to you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? In different realms, and some of you are teachers. You engage with students, and you've given them a directive, or you're trying to teach them, and they just laugh at you and scorn at you. Ooh, what does that do to you? Now, don't answer out loud, but <laughs> the flesh begins to be riled up, doesn't it? These people, publicly, tons are there, begin to laugh and to scorn at Jesus. And I'm often, as I try to enter into the text, how does Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't even acknowledge. Doesn't rile his flesh. It's their loss. Jesus is here to perform a, a miracle at the request of a ruler who has childlike faith, who believes in his saving work. It is to everyone else's shame. We see the control of Jesus. We see that Jesus knows his mission. Jesus is going to be able to pray, Lord, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. Friends, what an example for us here this morning, not to get sidetracked in the mission, not to get derailed or off track, not to live for the applause of men, to look to Jesus. As we sang this morning, knowing that he will complete the work that he's given us, that he is working in our lives, working in a very real way. Now, let me also make sure we're not Jesus, but we're learning from Jesus. How does Jesus respond? And his response is a wonderful example for us. So Jesus then performs a miracle. The crowd was then put outside. They're lost. They laugh at him. No faith, no belief. They lost the opportunity to see the unbelievable. They were thrown out. They were put outside. Verse 25 tells us the crowd was put outside, and he went in, and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Now, don't miss this last phrase that we see in our text this morning. This uh, renown, this fame of Jesus goes out. This report goes out into all the land. And next week, in the next couple of weeks, we'll see how that connects to these other individuals who come to Jesus. I want to ask you a question this morning as we conclude our message. What does this text tell us about Jesus? We've touched on it already. We see that Jesus is approachable. Jesus is accessible. He is available. He's interruptible. Jesus is intentional. He takes his disciples with him. He's constantly teaching and training life upon life. He's showing them what it's all about. It's a constant discipleship classroom. This text tells us that Jesus is compassionate, that Jesus sees people as individual souls who need a shepherd. Friends, what about our hearts? Remember, Matthew's discipling us here. It's not enough for us to be in the head nod and, man, that's good. What about me? And what about you? Are we these things? In the name of Jesus, are we serving Jesus in such a way that we're an obstacle for others to get to Jesus? And that's a question for us to maybe meditate on and to, and to think about. And I say, Holy Spirit, show me some blind spots that may be in my life to where I'm trying to follow his example. 
But it's at the expense of an obstacle to others coming to Jesus as well. May the Holy Spirit walk us through these points. Am I accessible? Am I available? Am I interruptible? When the poor guy walks down the street at the gas station, and I'm just trying to guess, I'm mad about the gas prices, and it's getting higher every time, and I got to go, I got to get to, and somebody has the audacity to interrupt me of my day? Am I like Jesus? Am I interruptible? Am I accept- Oh, we all know how this is going to go. They just want money to go, go spend for alcohol and drugs. We, we know all about it. Friends, are we interruptible? Are we compassionate? Are we intentionate? intentional? Do we see the everyday interruptions of our lives as God's providence working in us to be disciples, disciple makers for his glory? May the Holy Spirit help us to look into this text and apply it to our lives this very day, this very week. Friends, as we look at these two unique and gospel miracle accounts, we can also have great empathy. While we may not have had death or the issue of blood, in the same way, our sin caused us to be outside the camp. Our sin caused us to be unclean. Our sin called us to cry out like Isaiah, I am an unclean man, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. I am ruined, I am hopeless, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then Isaiah hears the good news from the angel in verse 7 of that text. He says, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Friends, is your guilt taken away? Is your sin atoned for this morning? Your sin must be dealt with. Your sin isolates you from a holy God. Just like this woman with the issue of blood was isolated and outside the fellowship of the people, our sin also separates us from a a holy God. God delights in saving people like you and like me. And in your heart, if you're wondering, will Jesus hear me? I've sinned this sin. I've had a particular sin struggle for a long time. This is the thousandth time. Will Jesus hear my prayer of repentance? Jesus is accessible. Jesus is approachable. You can't wear him out. He's got more grace in him than there is sin in you, friend. Go to Jesus. Run to Jesus. He can help. He can heal. He can save. Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, expresses the heart of God to those in Christ who've been saved and transformed Paul says it like this and God raised us up with Christ and has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Jesus Christ the son here we have just such a text where Jesus delights in saving the impossible being approached being touched engaging And most importantly, more than the miracles that he performs, we see the miracle of salvation. Friends, have you recognized who Jesus is? Do you see him as the Messiah? That's what Matthew wants us to know. Jesus has authority over death, hell, and the grave. That's why we as Christians, because of miracles just like this one, because of the resurrection of Christ, when we bury our loved ones into the ground and we see the dirt clods being thrown onto the, the casket, we are not those who sorrow like others who have no hope. It's texts like this who strengthen our heart, strengthen our faith, and say, because of Jesus, we too shall live. Come to Jesus. Welcome 
to Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you how each one of these gospel miracle records and accounts strengthen our faith. Lord, we do not know what lies on the horizon. There may be someone in this room this week who gets a report that their days are numbered. It's very short. They've been sick and they've not known they are sick. How does a text like this shepherd our hearts in light of news like that? Oh, friends, it strengthens us. Lord, we're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of sicknesses because of Christ. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ, thank you for coming in our stead. Thank you for living our life that we're supposed to live, and yet we could never live in a billion lifetimes. Father, thank you for living it perfectly for us, in our stead, in our place. As Roger prayed this morning, thank you for dying and paying the debt on the cross that is ours to pay. Father, thank you for rising from the dead three days later and ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and preparing a place for us as your children, your people. Father, again, we look with eyes of anticipation. We look to the hillside. Lord, we look to the skies. We look for your return. Until that day comes, Father, we pray that we would live boldly, authentically, and faithfully, and powerfully. Father, give us power in our life. May our gospel have conviction and power. May people see our hope in Christ and the difference that it makes. Would you give us boldness to articulate that gospel? Father, it takes words. Lord, we do pray for the lost among us. Each family, people here present today are religious but lost. Lord, those who are lost and they know it and think you cannot save them. Lord, we pray that you would raise up and save trophies, make people trophies of your grace. All of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation. Our hope and trust is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.